Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris DeMuth. And we also have a new addition, our firm's COO, Rob Sterner. So Chris and I haven't done a podcast in a while, and we've been kind of thinking of ways to come back with one. And we decided that every month we publish a monthly reading list of things that we've read over the past month that have kind of got us interested or just ideas that we've been mulling over. So the way we're going to try to do this going forward is we're going to take a podcast once a month that's kind of pre-discussing the monthly links that we're about to talk about and all of the things we found interesting in the past month. So with that, Chris, Rob, I'll turn it over to you guys. What uh, what have you guys been reading at or looking in the past month that you've been interested in? Well, I think one thing that we've been talking about together is this is this sort of concept of looking back on Q4 when there is blood in the streets. You know how do how do we as investors prepare ourselves to take advantage of that? Should we? Should we be doing more? Should we be doing less? I think it's an interesting topic. I know it's one that we've debated a lot here, especially in light of kind of how quickly things shifted negative and then how quickly they shifted back positive. And so I I thought maybe that's a good way for us to start this off by talking about just as a general category, because it's something that obviously we've spent a lot of time on in thinking about. And so I don't, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts you want to start off with, with that, but I thought it'd be a good category to kick off with. Yeah, l- let me jump in here, Chris, and then I'll, I'll flip it over to you. So I think the thought is, you know, there are so many investors who come at and say, the best time to be buying is when there's blood in the streets. And something I've been thinking about is, I mean, obviously, that is a great time to buy. Who wouldn't want to be buying when there's blood in the streets? But it's something that's really been troubling me is how do you actually execute that in practice? You know, if you're looking at a stock that's selling for $7 per share and you think it's worth $10 per share, should you pass on that, which is a very attractive expected value, simply because there isn't any blood in the streets? And when do you define when there's blood in the streets? You know, like I think back to this is more market overall, but I think back to last October. Last October was one of the worst months in stock market history, but the stock market for the year of 2018 was still up a little bit at the end of October. So was that blood in the streets or was December, which was again, one of the worst months in stock market history, was December one of the worst? Was that blood in the streets, even though the stock market was still kind of close to all-time highs? It was only down 5% on the year. Like, you know, how do you define blood in the streets for the market overall or for a specific company? Like, should you be passing on things that have positive expected value just because there isn't, it isn't panicky enough? So Chris, I'll I'll flip it over to you. How, How do you think about that? I think the first thing is when you're doing high quality firm level research and you have a hypothesis and you really have kind of defined what the relevant questions are and you get a confirmation of that hypothesis, you should put the research to work. If you, if you've asked the right questions and you get the answers, I don't think that you need to second guess whether or not the market environment is dramatic or interesting enough for you to act So on the binary of literally putting your hands underneath you and waiting versus acting, I have a strong inclination to act. Uh, I think it's fine to be a frenetic researcher. It's a lot less fine to be a frenetic trader. But having some relationship, I think think psychologically it's very hard to keep doing really good research if you're just not going to use it. I mean, I think investing is fun. Like I think poker is fun. If you actually take the chips away, it loses interest pretty quickly. So I think that the binary of working and 
executing makes sense in terms of being poised to act when there is dramatic dislocation. I think that my countervailing point to act on your research is always be more liquid than your marginal counterparty. So it could be that you don't get the kind of nirvana of no suffering when everybody else is suffering and you can newly act. I think that's unrealistic. I've never been able to do that. But you can have the suffering slightly less or suffering to a tolerable extent that uh, you can relatively handle better. No, I I think that's a great point. And I just want to back up one second. I mean, I I threw a lot of examples out there that were market oriented, but even in bull markets, there's always, there's always kind of panic somewhere. So you can find it in individual stocks. Go ahead. And and I would think that there's a trite kind of facsimile of value investing that is completely insufficient, which is just looking at price versus prior price and to say, mm-hmm. it's down a lot, so that's an opportunity. Well, there, price is an only variable tells you actually nothing, right? Something could go up double, but maybe it should have tripled. Something can go down by 50%. It's not necessarily cheaper. Maybe it should have gone down by 60%. That often is actually the case. And so price in and of itself tells you nothing. No, th- that's such a great point. And that relates exactly to what I want to say. Like you you said earlier, like it's really hard to just sit on your hands and do nothing. And the thing I worry is if you sit on your hands doing nothing for six, nine, 12 months, because you quote unquote, only buy during a panic, the first time you see a stock drop 50%, are you going to say, aha, panic, but it turns out the stock dropped 50% because it's on its way to dropping 90% because it wasn't that the market was panicking and you were buying when there's blood in the streets. It's that the business had really deteriorated and you were buying from the first group of people who picked up the warning signs. And, you know, two weeks later, everybody's looking at it and being like, oh my God, this business is, you know, it's a blockbuster. It's zero. So I worry that if you, if you sit and do nothing for six, nine, 12 months waiting on panic, the first time you see something drop a lot, you're going to, you're going to say panic because you are the man with the hammer desperate to do something. Well, I think the other side of this too is, is really understanding, you know, what kinds of businesses you can and shouldn't want to be able to double down on, right? I think there's there's certain types of companies where we've seen where whether it's leverage or their own exposure to a single product, it makes it nearly impossible to buy more when that when that binary fails. Hmm. Versus other companies we own where where we can rely on other aspects of the business as when there is blood in the streets or or, or at least a difficult period. And I think that's something that's really, really helpful as we think through these things. Leverage is important when you think about a dramatic price dislocation because it really can be misleading if you are fixated on the equity market, a relatively small sliver of the overall market capitalization of the market, uh, either at the macro or micro uh, firm level. Uh, It's possible that the kind of second or third level effect then feeds back into credit so that it actually might be a massive impact in a completely unlevered company, but it might not be that big a market reflection if the equity moves, you know, say double digit, but then it was more of a data point than an opportunity. And I'm always cautious on things that are more of a data point than an opportunity, especially I don't have a good data set on this, but it's definitely kind of a sense I have about the era we're in that I think value investors have this kind of taste for being contrarian. Somebody says something that is superficial. And I'm always looking for and almost rooting for it being 
opposite of what's true. That somebody says something trite and said, no, the, the, the superficiality of it, if you only understood the depth, it would be quite opposite. But quite a few things have been done in politics and economics and in investing that had this kind of superficiality to it, that if you understood the depths way beneath, not that I did at the time, but kind of reflecting back, it was actually writer than right. You know, if you look at, I was just looking at you know, retail this week, there's a lot of kind of trite things you could say about retail stocks that were actually really, really right for a long time. And the kind of uh, first level thinking was not an opportunity to bet on the other side as much as I would like it to be. No, I, I think that makes tons of sense. You know, for it's tough because like with retail stocks for years, it's been Amazon and the internet is coming and you want to get out of the way of Amazon and the internet and pretty just like the thing I would think the market would know how to price in at the beginning of that. Exactly. But, you know, I, I wonder if that's an example of one where you look at retail stocks and you say Amazon and the internet is coming in. Amazon and the internet came in a big way, but retail is extremely competitive. It's always been cutthroat. And I wonder because they were locked into, you know, a a physical storefront, there's so many employees and there's these long-term physical leases. If that kind of prevented them from being able to shift into kind of the forward-looking world where I think like we talk about with our investors all the time, cable stocks, like four or five years ago, if I look back, it was, oh my God, Google is, Google Fiber is coming for the cable stocks. Or, you know, late last year there was, oh my God, 5G fixed wireless is coming. And every time it's come, it's cable has this like really durable infrastructure and nothing's been able to come for cable. So I do wonder, like I hear you on retail, but I wonder if that's an example of one that kind of gets over amplified in our head, though. It is such a great point to what you're talking about. It's it's hard when somebody has something that isn't really of the depth that you think would be necessary to outsmart the market and it just works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it works the, for a while. The yeah, classic, I mean, I think the classic one that has caused so many value investors or professional investors to just pull their hair out over the past five, 10, 20 years, whatever, is the FANG stocks, where 10 years ago, I'm going to buy Amazon because it's the best retailer. It's like, well, and uh, it turns out it worked out spectacularly, maybe because it's the best retailer, or maybe because it has the best CEO in the history of the world, and they did Amazon Web Services and all these other stuff. But you look back 30, 40 years ago, if you had done that with the the Nifty 50, you know, it didn't work out quite as well. So I, I do wonder about that as well. Do we want to keep talking about, uh, should we be sitting our hands more? Is there anything we want to talk about here? Are there any other things we wanted to talk about? There was a there was an article recently on small banks. It's an area that we focus on a lot. It's an area that you guys talked about in a recent interview with Hedgeye. I don't know if that's something that, that we want to chat about now, but I think it's definitely interesting. And I think as we just look at how these small banks compete in a world, not that different than what we're talking about, where you just have a lot of technology. And I think the question is, should, you know, should they exist? Does, is there a role for these small banks? Should they all be consolidated? What do you guys think about that? Yeah. So let me just back up. So the article was in the Wall Street Journal. It was the problem for small town banks. People want high tech services. And, it, you know, I think it's interesting when you think about banks 50 years ago, the most important thing a bank could have was kind of the store on the corner where people could go and physically transact with the bank, deposit checks, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And today, what small town banks are running into is the issue is you don't need as many physical storefronts. And they have trouble with, you have to put a lot of technology investment into things like mobile banking, mobile check depositing, and all that type of stuff. And they're running into kind of the issues of scale where JP Morgan, Bank of America, and all these giant banks can afford to do that. And if you're kind of the small bank with 10 branches, you're 
people don't really care about the branches anymore and you can't afford that technology. So Chris, I'll flip it over to you. I know you've had a lot of thoughts on small banks and that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of looking back earlier, there's always been a big opportunity in small banks. I've uh, invested in a number of de novo banks personally, kind of before Rangely Capital. And there was always this opportunity that banks would get gobbled up, regionals would buy them, they'd consolidate, and then they would lose all the personal touch. Because what would happen is if you were a prosperous dentist, say, and you had a incredibly profitable account, right? Because you, if just with some good service, you could have millions of dollars, a couple million dollars perhaps, sitting in an account earning no interest with a friendly banker you knew, that was a great business. But Bank of America doesn't care about that because it's just not that scalable. And the local touch um, made a big difference. But now, geez, you know, it's so much more about technology. It doesn't really have that high touch personal advantage. And they tend to not have the tech. I mean, there's some companies that do tech services for small banks. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of banks that have just no business being independent companies that uh, really uh, shouldn't exist. And the thing that was a little surprising to me here is like, obviously, there's back there's back office technology with compliance and regulatory stuff and everything. And that's one thing. But the, uh, something that was a little bit surprising to me here is like, if I go to the local burger shop, often they'll have a, a sales system that's probably almost as good as McDonald's because like there's a technology firm that goes and sells all of these different uh, burger shops up to the date technology. And I, I was just kind of surprised that these small banks are having so much trouble with the consumer facing technology because it seems like that an area right for someone in the tech world to come in, like unleash a product that, you know, there's no, once you develop it, there's no cost and they could sell it to a hundred small banks and the small banks could have something that keeps up with the larger banks, but maybe it's the bank thing, but it does seem like this technology issue, the regulatory, the compliance costs, it seems like JP Morgan, the big banks have gained tons of share over the past five to 10 years. It seems like that trend's not going away. And if you're a small bank in one region, it seems like it's eat or be eaten because you really need to scale up to keep it, to keep up with these technology costs. Well, yeah. And the, I think the technology firms, instead of building a back end and selling it to small banks, what they're doing is building the front end and then using a large bank to facilitate some of the services for them behind the scenes. Why sell it to the bank when you can disrupt the whole model and take all those customers, right? I think that's that's part of it, too, in terms of how the technology develops and, and the way it gets it gets used. And so it'll be interesting to see how the whole ecosystem forms. But I think overwhelmingly, I'm just more and more convinced that these small banks, whether a branch should exist in every town is, is one question, but I don't think it has to be an independent small bank in, in every little local town, right? It just doesn't, there's not really a need for that anymore. I was in my bank branch for the first time in, I don't know if it's been months or years, but a long, long, long time. I needed to get something notarized and I walked in there and the average age of people who are kind of waiting in line with paper checks was decades older than I am. And so you kind of look at this and think like, what is what is this even just the real estate needed for? Because it's just almost nothing. It's just so funny because we were talking about retail a second ago and you know there was the whole... Five years ago, all these retailers were like, oh, my God, we're getting killed by our – the department stores especially were getting killed by this fixed cost legacy leases. And they all started rolling back and there was this whole death of the malls thing. And now today, 
especially really trophy malls in particular, are really coming back, but not coming back, but they were always there, but they're getting even stronger because these online only brands have come out and they've said, hey, we need physical storefronts. Like that's our best advertising. We need something that uh, our, our consumers can interact with us in person. And you do wonder like if banking is just like five to 10 years behind it, where today you look at all these banks with all the branches and you say, oh my gosh, those branches, nobody goes in them anymore. But five years from now, could it be the branches evolve into something like in New York, Capital One has the Capital One Cafe where you can go and like, they'll give you coffee and stuff. Can they, can they evolve the branches to where five years from now we're saying, oh my God, they're all trying to grow their branch network mm-hmm. so that they can, uh, compete with each other and really interact with, uh, humans in person? Maybe. I mean, all of these other, uh, kind of retail storefronts have some qualitative aspect with kind of where your sensory perception can engage in it. I mean, I can't think of anything worse than try to drink a cup of coffee and have some retail banker ask me about interest rates and a savings account. Maybe the sensory aspect will be you've got $100 in your checking account and every minute they'll drop a penny yeah. until you're in so, front of you and I mean, show you the interest accruing. At least, you know, amongst my wife and her friends, it's so interesting to see because they, they'll, they'll be interested in on the retail side. On the banking side, their finances are so fluid with Venmo now that listening to her and her friends talk about various kid aspects, it sounds almost as fluid as a family relationship would be about money. You know, they always have money coming and going in every direction based on who's dealing with meals and transportation and trips and sports equipment and stuff. So somebody will just pay for something based on what's physically convenient, and then they'll kind of true it up later. And uh, I don't use that tech nearly as much, but uh, I mean, that's just that is what banking was. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal either today or yesterday. It was it was something like breaking up is easy, but sharing Netflix passwords uh, lives on. Uh-huh. And it was about all these couples who broke up and, you know, you move out and all this sort of stuff, but they would keep sharing the Netflix accounts. And part of it was because you build up this viewing history. And when you lo- if you get a new one, you lose all that viewing history. But the other thing was they were saying, you know, I just Venmo the dude $5 a month. It doesn't really matter. It's pretty easy for me to Venmo. But again, Venmo, that's online only. It's social. You do wonder, it probably does but you know, five years from now, could that be so profitable where they're like, hey, we're going to roll out a, a branch in every major city just so we've got a mm-hmm. physical interaction? I don't think you need that, but it, it is kind of interesting to think about something like that. Venmo is probably not the right source for it, but you, you know, just where you're going with the Venmo online, all that type of stuff. Well, I'll, I'll know all about it five years from now because that's about the next time I'll need to step in a branch. So I'll let you know <laughs> if it's still there. But I think you have to ask too, I mean, does the physical branch give people more trust in the institution or, it, I mean, is that is that really the point? And I think we're shifting to people's comfort significantly with just online access to everything, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's Venmo and even, and even with data, you look at what Square is doing with local restaurants and whatnot, now that they have access to the data, there's no reason to for the bank to have a personal relationship to lend money to a local business anymore. Technology and data is is really taking that over. Yeah. Because technically, I think Square is going to have far better data than than the bank will ever get sitting across from the restaurant owner. Yeah, just just thinking about physical presence, you know, I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, there a lot of people were saying, who would want to interact with an ATM? Like, don't you want the don't you want the exactly. friendly touch of a teller? And yeah. you know, it, it turned out no, you want the convenience of an ATM where it's super fast. And you know, you could very easily see 10, 20 years from now, the trend continues. It's like 
why would you ever go into a bank? Like take a photo of your check and send it over the internet or, you know, it, we're already moving towards a cashless society. You don't even worry about cash, just Venmo it, everything. And so. with federal insurance, there's really not any role for your confidence in your local institution. Who cares? You're going to get the money back one way or the other. Yep. Yep. Let's see. So that's banks that's sitting on our hands more. I, I think there's more to talk about there, but anything else you guys want to discuss? Well, I thought, you know, so shifting back the other direction, which is something where we, I think part of our thought is, you you know, there's going to be a need to be local and, ha- and actually have people go somewhere is is looking at the value of sports, sports rights, sports media. Andrew, I, I think there was a recent transaction in baseball, I believe with the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that came in below the Forbes estimate. I don't know if you have some thoughts on that. I know this is an area you spend a lot of time on. But I'm curious what what your thoughts were on yeah. that. Yeah, so I think our listeners who you know we haven't done a podcast in a while, but who who remember back to when we were doing them actively, or who followed us since then, know that some of our big investments are in the sports teams, particularly MSG, which owns the Knicks and the Rangers. And one of the big tricks to those investments has been if you have a controlling stake in a major league sports team. In general, if you sell that stake, it goes for a value far in excess of what most people look at Forbes valuations of what Forbes values. And the Cubs just sold a small stake for it was a little over $2 billion when they had been appraised for almost $3 billion. And I think people were looking at it and saying, aha, it finally this uh, the trophy asset bubble is cracking. And to me, I, I don't think so at all, because when you buy a minority stake in a team, if you you know if you buy a 20 or 30 percent minority stake, that's significant. You, you probably get some access to the team. You probably get some special benefits. You'll have a say in how the team's managed. But if you buy one of these really small one or two percent stakes in a team, I mean, I've heard I've heard of people who did this with the Mets when uh, the Mets had to sm- sell really small stakes because their owners were having some trouble with their finances. You get basically nothing like you'd probably be better off just going and buying a box box suite. Like I've heard of people who buy a one percent stake in the Mets and they get Mr. Met to come to their uh, their kid's birthday party. And that's pretty much the only stake associated with it. So I, I know there were people who looked at this Cub number and said, oh my God, this is trophy asset breaking. But if the Cubs were actually put up for sale, I think the Cubs would go for way over $3 billion. You know, it, It's control versus minority e-liquid stake that doesn't do a lot. Go ahead. Chris. Especially with a majority owner that's a diagnostically wealthy family with multi-generations and they have very sound management with younger members of their generation who are very much sober, sane, free and their neurocognizance people who will be able to manage that wealth, I would strongly perceive for generations to come. And so I believe that you or I have just as much chance of being ultimately in control as he does or anybody outside the Ricketts family, which is precisely zero. That's a fantastic point. If James Dolan came to someone tomorrow and said, hey, I'm going to sell you 10% of the Knicks and it's got no rights. And, you know, five years from now, I might sell all the Knicks and you're not you can you win if you're the highest bidder. But that that's the only way that's going to go for a discount. But if he said, I'm going to sell you 10% of the Knicks in three years from now, I'm going to sell you controlling stake. And, you know, maybe we'll agree upon the price now. Maybe we'll agree upon it then, but I'm going to give you a pathway to control. Well, then that 10% stake, then you're going to see something in line with what a control premium would go for. So these sports teams, the value is not being in the super minority position. The value is being in the controlling position where you get the tax breaks, you get the political power, you decide the future of the franchise. If there were two owners that together owned 
uh, 95% and they were split evenly, I would sure like to own the other 5%. But if there's one owner that controls almost everything, I own the 5%, 5% is very different. Yep, yep, yep. No, that's perfect. Let's see. Chris, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for any last thoughts, any last things you saw this month that you kind of wanted to flip through? Uh, the EBIX uh, offer, something I have some thoughts with, but uh, uh, EBIX made an offer for Yatra and it was... And I'm kind of a connoisseur of quirky M&A structures. And this was the quirkiest I think we've ever seen. Yeah. So this is eBix made an offer to buy Yatra, which I think it's the third or fourth biggest online travel agency in India. So think like Expedia in India. I, I haven't followed it super closely. I don't know. But the, you know, what was so strange about this was normally if you're, you know, we've seen hostile bettors before. And if you're a hostile better, you come with an all cash offer and you go to the other company's shareholders and you say, that management team is entrenched. They refuse to sell it to us no matter what we do. Look how much money we're giving, willing to give you. And in Ebix's case, they came with an offer that was like, it was part cash, part stock, but their stock was valued at, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like their stock was at 50 at the time, but in the offer, they valued their stock at 60. And they had a all, buyer's election too. I mean, that was a funny thing. Yeah. So they were overvaluing their stock in the offer and they had all these weird puts and calls. And you just look at this and you say, what is this team doing? It's one of the strangest offers I've ever seen. For the first time I read it, I thought it was a joke PR that yeah, had been put it, out. It really looked like that. Because if you think about it, we already have a money system. The whole point of a common store of value is you can just net present value, offer cash or offer stock. The complexity that comes in deals is typically a creature of the negotiating process so that you agree on one part, you can't agree on another, you create a right or you do something that's related to the bid and the ask of the negotiation. So just starting a conversation with all of this minute complexity, you know, it would be like if somebody went to uh, pick up a girl at the bar and said, hey, do you want to go out with me? And then you have like, she'd never seen you before. And then you say, I have 30 conditions. And you'd be like, <laughs> well, it's kind of a weird way to begin the conversation. I mean, because usually you have kind of two asks. Either you're negotiating over price or you're negotiating over the qualitative things. I think trying to approach somebody with both being really heavy lifts at the same time, the vast majority of targets are going to say, just just forget about it. I don't even want to think about it. I, that, it's such a good point. And Chris, I'm just going to say, wait, you really pulled that home because when you said it's like approaching a girl at a bar, I was like, oh my God, we're going to we're gonna have to edit this podcast out. This, <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. But you really managed to pull that one off. So way to hit that out the bar. My point is, you're, you're cold you're, you're, you're calling cold, cold, like somebody. You, you can't have like this, this complex unnegotiated offer. Yeah. Hey guys, you know, it's really like Ebex went to Yatra and said, listen, their, their board refuses to negotiate us. Look at how complex of a deal we have. We don't know what it's worth. They don't know what it's worth, but why won't they negotiate? Why would you say no to this? Well, I have like 50 different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Rob, do you want to, any last thoughts or I think we can wrap it up there. I think it's probably a good spot. Okay, great. Well, Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back next month. You can, uh, I will, post the link to the monthly links blog post in the show's comments and then we can uh, keep going from there so thanks a lot and we'll talk to y'all next month bye